Good morning, church. It's good to be together to worship the Lord, to come around the Word together. Whether you're in this room or whether you're watching somewhere else, it is good to be still united in one purpose, one desire, and that is to see our Lord Jesus Christ exalted in all things. The two things Psalmist said that are exalted his name and his word. So we exalt his word this morning. There are two friends who meet up in a store one day, and after exchanging greetings, the one friend looks at the other friend and notices he looks rather sad. So he asked his sad-looking friend, what has the world done to you, my friend, that you look so depressed? Well, you see, the sad man replied, three weeks ago, someone sent me a check for $1,000. Well, that's a good thing, his friend remarked. Yeah, and two weeks ago, an unexpected refund came in the mail for $3,000. I don't know, but it sounds like you've been blessed. You don't understand, the sad man said. Last week, a distant relative passed away and surprisingly left me $10,000. Well, that's a lot of cash, his friend said, and for the last three weeks, money has come your way. I'm really confused. Why do you look so sad? His friend answered, this week, nothing, absolutely nothing. And I think, isn't that true for our lives? We see things through the lens of what we don't have right now. We often forfeit thanksgiving because of a sense of entitlement. Do you struggle with finding cause for praise? Do you find yourself grumbling about the way things are and missing out on seeing the hand of God at work right in front of you? Is there a bright spot to focus on when times are dark? Well, we're in the the book of Daniel, and I invite you to turn there this morning with me to Daniel uh, chapter 2, as we'll pick up the rest of chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 49 today. And if you count, that's uh, 31 verses. And if I take two to three minutes per verse, well, you can do the math. Relax, I have no intention of doing that. Well, I do intend, though, to look at some of the particulars this morning from this passage. My hope is that the plain things aren't lost. The words written down as superintended by God, so we have exactly what God wants us to have. They're meant to encourage those in Daniel's day who were in exile, living in a foreign land, who are about to come out, or perhaps just starting coming out, and wondering what in the world is happening, what's going on. Well, these are things we need to hear as well. We ask the same question. What in the world is God doing? And before we pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 2, let me remind you of where we left off last week. You'll recall that King Nebuchadnezzar was uh, deeply disturbed about a particular dream. And so he turns to his dream team, uh, some human experts in the day, uh, to help him make sense of his dream. And I believe 
that the king had serious doubts about these guys, so he, he tests them by demanding they first tell him the contents of the dream. And my impression is, is that the king knew what he dreamt, he just didn't know what it meant. And so it's become the impossible dream for what the king demanded belong in the, belonged in the realm of the supernatural. See, no human answers will suffice to answer the deeper questions of life. And so the dream team can't come through to tell them the contents of the dream, and the king ain't happy. And if the king ain't happy, no one's happy. And so in an outburst of anger, the king's tongue got ahead of his mind, and he ordered all those in his court to be executed. This decree extended beyond this dream team to include uh, Daniel and his three friends. And so, so, so Daniel gets word that, that you know, he's gonna, his head's going to be chopped off here, uh, but he didn't panic, he prayed. Is that my first instinct when crisis strikes? Is it yours? Daniel chapter 2, verse 18, we looked at it last week. He, it says, Daniel urged them, his friends, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, make no mistake about it, there's a very practical reason that brings Daniel to his knees. His mind was on staying alive, staying alive, staying, you know, you know how it goes, yeah. A little concerned about me, I know. <laughs> but as you can imagine, there's an incredible sense of urgency to pray. Pray that God would do the impossible and reveal the nature and meaning of this dream. And verse 19 tells us, we pick it up here, verse 19, during the night, we might say when the situation was at its darkest, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Now, what situation right now for you is at its darkest? Will you plead for mercy from the God of heaven and let's see what God can do? That's what we talked about, spent a lot of time on last week. See, God is at work in these dark times and certainly for Daniel's world, and he lets Daniel in on the king's dream. And what happens next? is no small thing. It's not incidental to the rest of the material we find in chapter 2. Because the end of verse 19, follow along, it tells us, then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And God made sure to include in Scripture Daniel's praise. See, but as far as the storyline goes, it could have simply gone from God revealing the mystery to Daniel in verse 19, skipping over verses 20 through 23, and just pick it up in verse 24, then Daniel went to Arioch. As far as the storyline goes, it could skip that, and we wouldn't miss a thing. And you know, from what I read this past week from commentaries and sermons on Daniel chapter 2, you would think that God didn't include these words of praise. Sadly, very little attention was given to verses 20 through 23 in order to get to the good stuff, <laughs> verses 24 through 49. And I would argue that if 20 through 23 doesn't happen, we have a different encounter between Daniel and the king. 
It's amazing what praising can do. That was a chorus years ago. It's amazing what praising can do. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It's amazing what praising can do. Hallelujah. I don't worry when things go wrong. Jesus fills my heart with a song. It's amazing what praising can do. Hallelujah. It is amazing what praising can do. What can praising do? Well, first of all, our first heading this morning is praise points us in the right direction. Praise points us in the right direction. Verse 20 begins with Daniel saying, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Now, to give praise to the name of God means that you're praising God for who he is and all that he is for his character. And Daniel focuses on two aspects of God's character here, doesn't he? In verse 20, the end of it, wisdom and power are his, he says. Now, when we speak of the wisdom of God, let's just look at that for a second. We could define it this way. The wisdom of God could be defined this way. I take this from someone else. Wisdom is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. In other words, not only is it true that there couldn't be a better way to do things, but a better way also can't even be imagined. Are you wondering what in the world God is up to and why, he isn't being take, why it isn't being taken care of another way? Listen, when God is in it, there is no better way. How dare we think we know a better way? What is amazing about praising God is that it points us in the right direction. It can shift our eyes from the dark situation to the all-wise God who knows what he is doing and he is doing it. We need to, we need to keep the big picture in mind, church. It remind, reminds me of um, um, football coach John McKay of USC. He said to his team, after they had been humiliated, 51 to nothing, 51 to nothing by Notre Dame. McKay, the coach, came into the locker room. He saw a group of beaten, worn out, and thoroughly depressed young football players who were not accustomed to losing. He stood up on the bench, and, and he said to these dejected guys, he said, men, let's keep this in perspective. There are 800 million Chinese who don't even know this game was played. That's perspective. That's perspective. We need to keep the big picture in mind because so much of life doesn't make sense in the, in the, in, in, in the, in the micro. But what do we know that can give us perspective? We know that God is infinitely wise. And not only is God infinitely wise, Daniel uh, praises God for it, but also that he has the power to accomplish all his wise plans. And Daniel flushes that out some more. Look at verse 21. It says, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings. He deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Church, God determines when in history events are to take place and how long each phase in history continues. Even the, the, the stuff that's hidden from us 
God sees. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. See, Daniel is confident that God's going to resolve the problem. So he says in verse 23, I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we, he and his three friends, have asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And so God answers their cry of mercy and reveals to Daniel the contents of the dream and its meaning. Now you might think, you know, it'd be easy to offer up praise to God right here when God answers prayer. It's easy to praise God when the crisis is over, when God tells Daniel the dream. Well, before we dismiss this praise as being nothing but more than but a thanks to God for saving their lives, there is a remarkable display of faith here. There's still a lot of details to be worked out for this to end well. We know the rest of the story. Daniel does not. And Daniel is trusting God with the outcome because he doesn't really know how it's going to play out. Because think about it. He must first of all believe that what he received was accurate. Secondly, he must convince Arioch, the executioner, that he's been given the meaning of this dream. And then thirdly, he has to stand before this king an unstable, insecure, power-hungry, easily angered king and deliver a message that's guaranteed to offend. And similar to Daniel's resolve not to eat of the king's food, is Daniel's acting on what he knows of this dream, but he has to trust God with the outcome. The praise comes before it all plays out. That's the point, isn't it? Can we give praise to God in advance before we see things working out? Do we trust him with outcomes we cannot yet see with our eyes? Are we so focused on what is broken that our hearts are filled with cynicism? Let me be honest, a lot of cynicism has come in my, my life lately, my heart, my mind. I've got to struggle with that generally speaking. But lately it seems to even be worse But you see, it's cynicism that sees the world without the eyes of God. It is is to only see the world as broken. It's amazing what praising can do. It can point us in the right direction. It can get our eyes on God rather than on the problem. I mean, what if in this broken world we were people with a different perspective because we had the big picture in mind? What if we replaced cynicism with some optimism of what God can do and of what God is doing? Might we then be that bright spot? Well, Daniel now puts some legs to his praise. He goes with what God has given him. Our second heading this morning is praise points others to God. Praise points others to God. Daniel's heart set on praise and knowing what God can do, now it's time for action. And the very first word, at least in the NIV, of verse 24 is then. Then. Then Daniel went to Arioch. Praise God. Then Daniel went to Arioch. Daniel goes to Arioch, the executioner. Now ready to provide the only answer to Nebuchadnezzar's troubles, God has spoken and made known to Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's uh, troubling thoughts with some interpretation. And verse 25 
It says, Arioch took Daniel to the king at once, and he said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something about what he says that just kind of jumps off the page to me. He says, I, king, you're going to be impressed with me now, I have found this man. I, I've done it, king. Aren't you, aren't you impressed? I've done it. It's not how it played out at all. Daniel came to him. But, but he's saying, you know, he, he felt pretty confident here that Daniel's going to come through with the dream and give the meaning of it. And when he does, Ariok wants to get credit for finding this man. I found him. You're going to be so happy with me. I might get promoted. It's been said there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who do the work and those who take the credit. Try to be in the first group. There's less competition there. <laughs> Daniel's of the first group. And so when the king asked Daniel if he was able to tell him the dream and interpret it, look at this, Daniel says in verse 27, okay, good, tell, me the, tell me the dream. And Daniel says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mysteries asked about. No one, no one can do this. And I imagine that the king is just coming off his chair right about now. Daniel says the same thing that dream, his dream team concluded. No one can do what the king asks. Hit pause right there. And I can imagine, I can imagine Arioch wanting to kind of change his tune a little bit here. And he said, did I say I found this man? <laughs> what I meant was I found this coop, this nutcase, who thinks he can interpret the dream. And it's supposed to be clear here. I don't think he's going to come through now. And just when the king might be thinking, here we go again, Daniel says in verse 28, key verse, but there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. But there is a God in heaven. Let's linger there just for a moment. But there is a God in heaven. Just when some situation looks hopeless, but there is a God in heaven. Just, just when you're overwhelmed uh, by what your eyes see, but there is a God in heaven. How might you apply that to your life right now? How might you apply that to all that is going on around us? But there is a God in heaven. And then in verse 30, Daniel says, As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Now catch this. Not because I have a greater wisdom than other living men. What a contrast between Arioch and Daniel. Daniel did not make any claim to have uh, wisdom and power of his own. He doesn't want to take any credit for the answer to the king's dilemma. Now, follow this. Daniel was gifted with the ability to understand visions and dreams of all kinds, it tells us in chapter 1, verse 17. God gave Daniel a great mind. Even the king was impressed with him and his three friends, and, and then he found them to be ten times better than all those in service to the king in matters of wisdom and understanding. Ten times better. I mean, there are these guys over here, but Daniel, you are ten times better than them. I mean, you are amazing. You are part of the elite group, he says. I mean, it's pretty heady stuff, especially for, for a 17-year-old. I mean, it could have easily have gone to Daniel's head, don't you think? 
George Washington Carver was an agricultural scientist and inventor who developed hundreds of products using uh, peanuts. And the story's told that on one occasion he was asked to share the origins of his ideas, to share how his success from a peanut came about. And Carver answered this. He said, well, well, when I was young, I asked God to tell me the mystery of the universe. And God answered, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, well then, God tell me the mystery of the peanut. And God replied, well, George, that's more nearly your size. <laughs> Let's not get too big a heads. See, when we praise God for who he is, it keeps us humble. We're not as quick to go, I have, I'm doing this. Daniel gives credit to the God of heaven who alone can reveal mysteries. In essence, he says, I can't take credit for this king. I'm, I'm not really anybody special here. I'm, be I'm not better than anybody else. God is the revealer of the secrets. It it's God. I'm not really up to it, but God is. I can't see it, but God can. And so up front, Daniel makes it clear that this is a God thing. It isn't about what men can do. It isn't about what Daniel can do. It is what God can do. And I believe the, this whole story turns out differently if Daniel doesn't first have a passion to praise God. And because his mind is so focused on God, he points others to God. And that leads us to our final thought as to what praising does. It's amazing what praising can do. Third thing is praise points us to the one who is in control. Praise points us to the one who is in control. Now, Daniel's entire success was built upon remembering his God. Daniel had an amazing confidence in God's control. Now, contrast that with the king. The king's mind was filled with all these troubling thoughts because he was becoming painfully aware of the little control he had. He knew that much about his dream. And Daniel comes along and he really only confirms what the, what the king fears as, the, as he tells the king his dream. And so in verses 31 through 35, he tells the king the contents of, the, of his dream. Now let me summarize it for you, verses 31 through 35. Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of an enormous, dazzling, top-heavy statue. Now, we shouldn't really think idle here because that really isn't the point. But in the king's mind, he saw himself as this giant force in the world. This statue was made up of four different metals. The head of the statue was of pure gold. The chest and the arms were of silver. The midsection and the thighs were made of bronze. And then the legs of this statue were made of iron with these oddly constructed feet made up of both iron and clay and had the ten toes and that's where people have a lot of fun with it. It's the good stuff. Then in the king's dream, suddenly the statue smashed to smithereens by this huge rock. This rock, which came from a mountain, becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Now, what would be uh, been of great interest to Nebuchadnezzar would be when he heard of this rock coming from a mountain and then uh, it becoming a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. 
Why would that be of such interest to him? Well, the Babylonians believed that their gods came from the sacred mountain of the earth. Their gods, they believed, lived in the mountains. Matter of fact, their chief god, Marduk, uh, was called the Great Mountain. And there's no accident here that God, uh, for God to speak of this future kingdom, we'll get to that in a moment, this future kingdom as a stone cut out from a mountain and would become this great mountain that would fill the whole earth. No doubt this would have Nebuchadnezzar on the edge of his seat. Daniel's detailed description of his dream was spot on. This was exactly the king's dream. Daniel nailed it. It was obvious to the king that this Daniel was the real deal. So Daniel tells him the contents of the dream. He says, well, that's, that's the dream, king. I hope you have some fun with it. Take care. See you in the morning. <laughs> no, he doesn't do that. He explains the meaning of the dream. And so he says to the king, verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will interpret it to the king. I'm not exactly sure why Daniel says we will interpret it. It's either including God in it or perhaps his three friends, which I believe is more likely. And then Daniel says to the king in verse 37, get this, he says to him, you, O king, are the king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar's head, is, it's nodding right now. He, he'd agree with that assessment. But Daniel puts a twist on it, however, he goes on, continuing in verse 37, follow along. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he, God, has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the beasts of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. Who has? God. Daniel states in no uncertain terms, that Nebuchadnezzar is the superpower in the world at that time because God decided that he could be. That's not loose perspective here. God put him there. And so at the top, top of the statue is the head of gold, which likely, most agree with this, is referring uh, to the first world power, Babylon, with Nebuchadnezzar as the ruler. He was in charge of Babylon for, uh, history tells us, for over 40 years. And, and Babylon continued as the world power with, with two other kings for an additional 20 or so years until they were overtaken by Persia. And so the Persia was that second world power represented by the silver. That was Medo-Persia. And then, then following that world power, most people agree, following history, that goes beyond uh, Nebuchadnezzar's time, is that what comes along here, the bronze part of the statue was Greece with Alexander the Great when he invaded Persia. And so you have Babylon, then you have Persia, and then you have Greece. And then verses 40 through 43 tells us that the fourth world power likely is referring to Rome. Iron breaks and smashes everything, it says in there. So Rome came along from further on after, after um, Babylon and Persia and Greece. And then there was Rome right into the time of Christ. You can follow along. There's, you know, good history here. Now, it seems to be this Rome picture with the ten toes to be more of a federation than one powerful single empire. I, I believe that's depicted by the legs of iron 
demonstrating toughness and ruthlessness, and yet feet of ten toes, they were mixed with what? Iron, strength, clay, brittle. And so you have this fragile base for this huge monument. Now, there's some disagreement, of course, you can imagine, around the interpretation of the feet and the toes of the fourth kingdom. It really is a matter of where you place the timing of the fifth kingdom, and we get to verse 44 and following. You see, there's agreement for the most part on the four kingdoms in succession, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. The question has to do with the arrival of the fifth kingdom. All right, hopefully your eyes aren't at half-mast here. <laughs> but let me speak to the final scene in the king's dream of a fifth and final kingdom. It is a rock of a rock that rolls down a mountain and smashes against the brittle feet of the great image and topples it over. You see, this enormous statue, the, the four powerful world emperors uh, are reduced to dust, and wind comes and, and, and it sweeps it all away. Now, let me pause for an application right here because I don't want us to miss this. Might this statue, an application, might this statue uh, be a picture of all the things in our contemporary worlds? You know, the, the thrones that, that we build and our personal empires and, and what we do and, and our systems that we develop, our own plans that we think are so clever, our agendas of personal praise, all our worldly treasures. Listen, church, those things that aren't of God, all will topple, all of it. All they are is dust in the wind. That's it. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. And you know what? Some people are giving their whole lives to dust in the wind. Their whole lives. I don't want to be of that group. Wouldn't it be better to give ourselves to something that lasts? This fifth kingdom begins as a rock grows and advances to become a huge mountain. And I believe we can be certain God's spoken of as a rock. The Old Testament, Jesus is spoken of a rock often in the New Testament. I think we can be certain what this rock is all about. The rock is a picture of Jesus Christ and his kingdom rule that will never be destroyed. And even though the church has been attacked and persecuted, it still stands. Growing up on the Atlantic coast, Gregory Elder spent long hours working on intricate sandcastles. Whole cities would appear beneath his hands as he would build these sandcastles. One year, as he created all these masterpieces, some bullies would come along and with their bare feet, they'd smash all these sandcastles. For several days in a row, the same thing happened. These people come along and they knock over all the sandcastles. He'd walk by and kick him over. Well, he got so fed up with it, he decided to place a, a huge rock at the base of his castles. And then he built this, these, these sand kingdoms on top of the rocks. And then it, it disappeared. And I have a feeling he didn't go too far because I think he wanted to see it. And sure enough, 
the local toughs, uh, they would appear and suddenly their bare feet would meet their match as they're trying to kick it over and they're kicking a rock. You know, people may come along all they want and kick at the church, one of God's creations. But let's not forget the church is built upon a rock over which the gates of hell shall itself. If so, then that would mean that in the future, there seems to be a revival of sorts of the Roman Empire or something that looks like it. They'll be brought to life again in the form of a ten-nation, if ten is to be taken literally, a ten-nation confederation. And when we get to Daniel chapter 7, it's then from that revived Roman Empire, it seems, part of Europe, that will come the, the evil world leader of the last days known as the Antichrist. Now, if we compare Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 with the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 19 and 20, then the image of the ten toes possibly points to a future day when Christ will come, and this part is in fact true, he will defeat the last generation of worldly power and establish his kingdom on earth, the kingdom that will be ushered in with Christ a thousand years of reign that we call the millennium. Now, you can... Check all that out for yourself. Listen, we mustn't get too preoccupied on all those things. Let's stand back and see that there is a rock to stand on. Let's stay focused on the plain things, for that leads us to praise rather than despair. Well, what is the plain thing? What the king encounters in a dream is a snapshot of what God is doing in human history. God sets up kingdoms and nations, and he brings them down. God is sovereign in the human affairs of our time. Do we act like we really believe in the sovereignty of God? I mean, if you follow me around this past week, would you say, there is a guy who believes in the sovereignty of God? Would I say that of you? As we get up tomorrow morning, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, we need to remind ourselves of this truth. God sets up and brings down nations and rulers. This is what we need to know. Kingdoms, nations will come and go, but God's kingdom will last forever. Nations, rulers, Presidents, elections will come and go, but God's kingdom will last forever. We can take heart, church, that no matter who is in office, no matter what is going on in the White House, no matter what may come up against us, our feet are planted on the rock who is Jesus Christ. Church, the rock to stand on is Jesus Christ. The rest is all just sand. Everything else is just dust to the wind. What will last is the church, I mean the followers of Jesus Christ. See, don't, don't let short-term disruptions distort your perspective of God's eternal reality. That's the takeaway right there. Don't let short-term disruptions 
distort your perspective of God's eternal reality. There was an American businessman who went to Switzerland to enjoy his vacation. He decided to be adventurous and do some mountain climbing. He found a reliable guide, and the two uh, set out to climb the, the Matterhorn. First day went well without incident, and at the end of the day, the two settled in for a good night's sleep. At night, that was typical in that area, the temperature would drop sharply, and ice would form on the glaciers. Well, then the early morning sun would come up and, and melt the ice, and, and then it would make this terrible noise as it tumbled down as great masses of ice just crashed against each other. American tourist was paralyzed with fear when he was hearing all this noise, and he shouted at his guide, wake up, wake up, the end of the world is here. <laughs> the guide woke up, he knew what was happening, he heard it before, and he said to his companion, no, 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 go, go back to sleep. It's not the end of the world, it's the beginning of a new day. And they continued their upward journey, the tourist did not let his fear get in the way of reaching his destination. You know, when we hear about the many bad things happening around our world, we may feel like the tourist and only see the worst. We might say, oh, the end is near. Maybe it is. The world's coming to an end. Maybe. Is that to be our focus? It can be the beginning of a new day with new possibilities where we can be a bright spot in the dark world. Hope is in the journey as well as the destination. And we have the assurance that our loving God walks with us every step of the way, that we stand on the rock who is Jesus Christ and nothing can move us. Don't let short-term disruptions distort your perspective of God's eternal reality. And that church is great cause for praise. Let's pray. God's easy. I do it. Done it. Afraid I'll do it again. See what's going on and 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 grumble and complain and and uh, sometimes it feels like a short step to despair. It's not where we're to live. Our hope really is in the journey as well as the destination. So help us, God, to see the big picture. Help us, God, to see. You are in control of all that's going on around us. And if it is true, and it is, that you're the God who controls all world events, then it is just as true that we can trust you with our very lives. So as we sing this last song this morning, may it be true of our heart and desire and our intention to trust you with our lives the very details of them. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.